0: Welcome to the View from the Valley podcast by Delaware Valley Classical School. I'm Anthony Erty, head of school. Now, more than ever, education is a battle for our children's minds and hearts. On this podcast, we discuss classical Christian education and what it looks like in practice. For more information on what we do here, visit ddclassical.org. I'm pleased today to be joined by Mr. Stephen Rippon, who has taught literature, rhetoric, debate, composition, uh, perhaps something else that I'm not remembering here, for 15 years. Anyone who has been around this community for any period of time knows Mr. Rippon. He's a graduate of the Air Force Academy, where he also taught English for a time, and Westminster Theological Seminary. He's a blessing to this community, particularly to his students. Today, we're discussing the importance of literature in the classical Christian tradition. We'll even talk about some specific works of literature, uh, and then perhaps how literature ought to be a part
1: of the Christian's life. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you for your kind words. I'm I'm happy to be on this podcast. I'm really excited about sharing. Stephen, perhaps for some context, uh could you just kind of share how you got into classical Christian education? Sure. I had good experiences as a student, especially in high school. And one teacher that I remember especially was a teacher of literature, my 10th grade year. I, I had just moved to Louisiana from Hawaii. My father was in the Air Force, and so so my father was, was transferred with the Air Force to Louisiana. I was at a new school. Over that summer, I read a lot, and I was reading a lot of more popular fiction, like by the horror novelist Stephen King, but when I got into school, I met the 10th grade literature teacher, Mrs. Hemingway, and she assigned us to read Homer's The Iliad, and I had never read anything so old before. We had read some modern classics earlier in my education. So reading the Iliad was an entrance into a whole new world for me. And while as a 10th grader, I think the things that drew me most to the Iliad were the, the battle scenes, the descriptions of gory deaths. Still, that, I had a very positive introduction to learning to enjoy the literature. And so that was a that, that was a good start for me, and I enjoyed literature all the way through high school I enjoyed writing, I had very encouraging supportive teachers and friends who who also loved literature. So, when I went to college at the Air Force Academy, I decided to major in English, which was a that was a kind of a refuge for me in the in the world of the Air Force Academy. because. There's a lot in that curriculum. There's a lot of math courses, a lot of engineering courses. But as an English major, I could spend a lot of time with books as well. And we talked about the literature of war. I took a class in classical literature where we read the Iliad again and some some other works that exposed me more broadly to the, to the classical world. But even, even so, I think the thing that really got me into classical education was when I was teaching at the Air Force Academy by this time i was married and we had friends a couple who he was also my roommate at the air force academy and he was also back on the faculty in the department of political science and we decided to start getting together on sunday evenings to discuss the classics and so he and his wife and jen my wife and i as as well as uh, another guy who was a retired air force officer who had been a mentor to us both when we were cadets, who had also taught in the Department of Political Science, who also was one who was an inner varsity leader, who had led us into the Reformed faith, who had really helped deepen my faith when I was a cadet. So together with him and then us two couples, we talked and worked pretty systematically through a lot of the great classics, just in a a sort of informal environment, meeting mostly at, at this other couple's home On Sunday evenings and we would do a few books of the Iliad and then the Odyssey we read some of the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle we read some of the Greek tragedy we read Virgil's the Aeneid we read Dante's Inferno so all of that was was a really good start to getting involved in the in the classical world so a couple of things come to mind one what an irony that the teacher who would have kind of
0: propelled you uh into literature had the name of hemingway but second some of what you've been discussing here brings up the question um and i think this is probably a paraphrase but what doth athens have to do with jerusalem you know so so let me ask about a lot of what we read and what you're teaching in the six classes that you are teaching this this year uh, is in fact pagan literature. So, so can you talk a little bit about how pagan literature perhaps points us to Christ or even perhaps more broadly, uh, the value of pagan literature for the
1: Christian? Yes, that's, that's a really good question. And I think that's something that we all need to think through in, in classical Christian education, because a great part of our curriculum are works from pagans who lived before the time of Christ. And so there are some helpful frames of reference that we have to read these works through. There is the, I think, one of the, the important sort of biblical theological themes that we have is the theme of, of plundering the Egyptians. That, that phrase, plundering the Egyptians, refers to the time in Exodus where Moses had the Israelites ask for gold and silver jewelry from among their Egyptian neighbors. And it was a, a miracle of God. God worked in these Egyptians to that they were they were willing to give their treasures to the Israelites, who then left Egypt. But they left Egypt with this these treasures from from Egypt. So that was a that that idea of plundering the Egyptians. one one early church theologian who talks a lot about that is St. Augustine, and he talks about how that treasure belongs to God, regardless of who actually owned it. So there is much treasure to be found in the ancient world, even among pagans. There's there's great insights, there's wise insights among those. And so we can read pagan philosophers and historians and, and poets fruitfully with that idea in mind that we can take what is good from them And yes, there is some, some dross among the gold, but that is something that through biblical discernment, we can discuss and, and make sure that we're, we're extracting the gold and not the dross. So some, some more practical things, certainly in these, these pagan works were part of the education for, for all well-educated people. So the apostle paul certainly shows signs of having been well read among these pagan philosophers and so he he will quote them in his message like to the on the areopagus uh-huh. and acts in acts 17 so he was familiar with these pagan works later writers will allude to them frequently but you know i think one of the most interesting things that that about reading the pagan literature is and to use an example from what we're reading right now with the 8th grade Gilgamesh, we actually can appreciate much more the beauty of the gospel by reading about a world that does not have the gospel. So for example, in Gilgamesh, there is a really poignant section where the king, Gilgamesh, has lost his best friend, Enkidu. And together, when Enkidu was alive, the two of them had faced many challenges together, they had fought the demon guardian Huawa, they had fought the bull of heaven, and Enkidu on his deathbed realizes that he's about to to die, and in this particular challenge, he will no longer have Gilgamesh with him, and so in before, they had, had always encouraged each other how two people companions, they can stand together against the danger, but now Enkidu alone has to face death, and we can see the, the hope and comfort that we have in Christ because in Christ, we do have that true companion who will be with us even into death. That's, that's the companion that in Enkidu on his deathbed realizes that, that it, it's, death is a very scary thing. And yet we can face death knowing that Jesus Christ already has faced death for us and has risen again from the dead, and that in Christ we do not need to fear, because nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. So so in this pagan literature, we see the hope of the gospel actually reflected by its absence, and we can look in those, those gaps in the pagan literature to see, yes, this that is a hopeless existence. It's a hopeless existence where in the Iliad you have war being perpetuated by gods who are feuding with each other is there any is there any hope for peace and that hope we know is only present in Christ the the prince of peace but that hope is is made all the more meaningful by the fact that it's absent in these pagan works but that the the absence that 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 lack of hope is what gives us an avenue to start talking about the hope that we have in Christ and to appreciate the gospel so much more and the difference that it makes.
0: Yeah, so so would it be fair to say that some of the value comes from the the juxtaposition of of, of a work like Gilgamesh, for example, with with, uh, scripture and with with the gospel, uh, but also uh, perhaps secondarily, you know, scripture teaches there's nothing new under the sun. So we're dealing with perennial human issues, even though those issues may be couched in the form of pagan gods, for example. Yes. Um, right. So, so just thinking about those perennial issues, I mean, is, that seems to be a clear benefit of reading pagan literature.
1: Yes, looking for, okay, where are the, where, where are the areas of hopelessness and lostness in the pagan world? dealing with with polytheism and death and and a general sense of hopelessness, we can translate that way of reading into reading the world around us too. Because even though we might laugh at at polytheism and idolatry in the sense of having physical idols that people would, would worship, certainly we have that same principle present in the world today, of idolatry and many gods that we serve, even if they're not, even if those gods are not directly personified as Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite, but certainly we have the functional equivalent of many false gods in our world today. And so we can still look at the world and see the hopelessness that surrounds us. And that gives us an opportunity to, to understand and to appreciate much more the treasure that we have in Christ.
0: So, so Stephen, you're you're teaching 7th through 12th graders this year, and um, those classes represent a span of millennia in terms of the content that you're covering. Um, I, maybe let me draw your attention to perhaps the more modern uh, among... I say more modern, but you're teaching the Consolation of Philosophy. Yes. Um, and this is... If I understand correctly, this is a new work uh, for this year.
1: Yes, and that's, that's one of the things I enjoy most about, about teaching is the opportunity to continue to develop myself in terms of my own, my own learning and continuing to try new things. So this work that we're reading in the ninth grade medieval literature course is a new one for me. Boethius the constellation of philosophy. So I had read many glowing things about about Boethius especially through CS Lewis who was who was greatly influenced by Boethius and CS Lewis says in I think it's in his book The Discarded Image to you know to know Boethius is to know the Middle Ages. So so if you understand Boethius that that's the beginning of understanding this whole this whole world of the Middle Ages that was so deeply influential on writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien in, in terms of forming their, their mind. But Boethius himself is a very interesting figure. He was an accomplished scholar. He wrote scholarly works on all seven of the liberal arts. And he in his, in, you know, was unjustly imprisoned and executed under the King Theodoric in around 524. So while he was in prison and awaiting execution, he starts writing poetry that is lamenting his sad state, kind of feeling sorry for himself. And in, in the Consolation of Philosophy, Lady Philosophy appears to him and engages in a dialogue and attempts to remind him of all of the things that He had earlier clearly known about philosophy, but perhaps had known only abstractly, but now seeing philosophy as a great comforter. It's an interesting work because Boethius was a Christian, and yet the consolation of philosophy does not make many overt references to Christianity. He's actually relying on just a lot more of the the principles that pagans and Christians would hold together. And Boethius's fusion of, of Christian theology and as well as the best of the pagan philosophy that he had received was, was influential in the Middle Ages going forward. This idea of faith and reason and, and drawing out the, the treasures that we have using using both of those ways of knowing. So so he finds consolation in philosophy as he's facing death
0: so this this is one of those works that seems to really hit on one of the core values of the school, which is wisdom uh, and building into that. So mm-hmm. along the same lines of getting and getting back to the prior question, so something a little bit more modern, even coming into the twentieth century uh, is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And yes. it, it seems you know to go from consolation of philosophy to Aldous Huxley, obviously we're 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 jumping quite a bit of time. Um, but in terms of themes, themes, um, how does that fit in with, you know, what you're, what you're teaching perhaps prior to that or what is the, what is the value of reading that work?
1: Yes, in the, in the 12th grade literature class with the seniors, we have been reading these great famous dystopias from the 20th century, so their summer reading was 1984 by George Orwell. We followed that with a, with a quick Look at George Orwell's Animal Farm, and now we are into Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I had I didn't know this before, but it turns out that George Orwell was actually a student of Aldous Huxley's. When Huxley, what? Early in his in his career, was a teacher at Eton, the, the
0: secondary school, school. Yeah, yeah, the
1: boarding school. And so Orwell was a student. Orwell was then known as Eric Blair so there is there is some continuity and influence there but then huxley's dystopia brave new world was written in 1931 whereas orwell's 1984 was written in 1949 and huxley did interact with orwell later about about that and and actually suggested that both of those both of their very different visions could actually be compatible if you see the the more authoritarian world of of orwell Perhaps as preceding what will eventually evolve into a world where people are driven not by fear, but by pleasure. Mm. So, but brave new world then is is a dystopia. it It, it shows a it, it's set about six hundred years from the time when Huxley wrote it, now about five hundred years from our time. And what's remarkable about that is Huxley, later in his life in, around 1958, wrote a, another work called Brave New World Revisited. And in that work, Huxley said that he had projected this as being centuries in the future, but he remarked that he was surprised at how quickly the world he envisioned was coming to be. And so now, now in 2022, there is still some, some debate, okay, whose vision of the future was more plausible? Was it Orwell's or Huxley? So that's a discussion that we will have with the seniors once we've finished brave new world but how brave new world and and as well as orwell's writings connect is that in in both cases they have depicted a society that has cut itself off from history they they have cut themselves off from this tradition of of the great works of literature and in the case of 1984 they they're constantly revising history so that it matches the ideology of Big Brother, whereas in Brave New World, they've managed to socially condition people away from wanting to read books. And so there's a a scene in the opening chapter, opening two chapters, where they have infants and they actually set some books in front of them, and then they administer electric shocks to the infants, so that they are terrified of ever touching a book. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, in that way, they'll, they'll, keep, they'll keep them safe from ever wanting to open a book. But the, the fascinating thing about Brave New World is that they also maintain a savage reservation in New Mexico where they allow a group of people to live according to their traditions. And there, a young man finds a copy of the collected works of Shakespeare. And this same young man is through circumstances in the plot brought into the world state, into this brave new world, having been morally formed by reading Shakespeare. And so that's a, a fascinating plot device because then this young man has just has, has read Shakespeare, has memorized it, has absorbed it. And so we see the, the brave new world through his eyes, through the eyes of Shakespeare, and we see the the stark contrast between somebody who who was a like a christian thinker who had who definitely had christian frames of reference in shakespeare and seeing the the world of of brave new world where everybody is driven by pleasure by sex you know when things go bad they just take some drugs mm-hmm. and everybody's just happy being having been conditioned to be what they are so Again, there is there is a a conversation between the the great works of the past and the present that we can see even in these these dystopias.
0: It'll be interesting to see where that debate comes down, at least among the students. Whose, yes, whose vision was more prescient, Orwell's yes. or Huxley's? Yes, seems like seems like both are perhaps intermingling a bit.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's elements of, of both intermingling, and so and and, and there is. A, a letter where where Huxley wrote Orwell and and suggested that over history you may need to have this authoritarian regime that will eventually modulate into a, a more pleasure-seeking regime. But yeah, it, it it's always a good debate. I myself am not decided which which way we're trending. Well, I yeah. want to ask you the question.
0: So, so let's let's maybe shift a bit um, here in the time we have left, because one of the things that perhaps makes a classical Christian school different, in addition to the books, the types of things that we're reading here, is also the pedagogy, the way that it's being taught. And um, one of the one of the things that you do in your classes that I find intriguing and valuable, and certainly the ancients found tree intri- uh, valuable as well, is known as commonplacing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that practice?
1: Yes. So this is something that I learned about a few years ago at at a conference of the Association of Classical Christian Schools, and it brought my attention to this practice of keeping a commonplace book. The idea is that based on what we're reading, we will come across lots of, of passages that we find to be very wise, beautiful, informative inspiring. And when we do, we write them into a book, we write them into a what we call a commonplace book. So it's a a collection of of quotations, passages from literature. And so this is something that I'm doing with all of my six classes, the six literature classes from seventh grade through 12th grade. And it's a weekly classroom practice that based on what we're reading in class that week, students are assigned to record at least two quotes and and some really get into it and do more, but so it's two quotes at a minimum and at least one quote from something we've read in that class and then something else that it could be from another class or just from something that they've picked up on their own. And so we have a time of sharing every Friday that we do. And I I really enjoy hearing the students share what, what kinds of passages have moved them and what they have thought worth writing down. And it's also, it also does reflect a, a maturing from the seventh grade through the 12th grade. So oftentimes among the seventh graders, like right now we're reading the Iliad and some of the boys really like the passages that describe the the gory deaths that are encountered. And have you gotten to the, to act out the scenes
0: yet with the pool noodles? <laughs>
1: well, yes, we we've gotten into that as well. So, so. Yeah, I know that the students always enjoy that. They they volunteer to to act out the scenes, the battle scenes, where because we have the the long pool noodles that act as the the initial stage where they engage with throwing their spears, and then if those miss, then they have the then they have the stage where they pull out their swords and they go at it with those. So so that's always a lot of fun, and then in, so in the commonplace books, then we're. So, so we do see, like, I also ask them, okay, you know, not only share the passage, but share, you know, what, what about it was, did you think was, was worthy of writing down in your commonplace book? Like, what, what, what's, what's actually like wise about this or, or beautiful or, or interesting? They share lots of good things. And I'm really pleased with what I see, the, the progression, the, the maturity of their thoughts as they, as they go reading things from from seventh graders to the way that they read things as as 12th graders. I'm especially pleased when I see them bringing in passages that they're reading in in Dr. Donato's Western Civilization or Natural Theology courses or in the the theology courses that they're they're taking. That's that's always very rewarding to see that they're applying this practice and and extracting things from across the, the disciplines.
0: Yeah, thank yeah, thank you for that. It's, it's helpful to set a frame around you know how these things are being taught, how are being as you know our, how our students are being exposed and how they're how they're utilizing the great literature uh, and certainly the commonplace can really be a helpful tool in 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 rhetoric, for example, the the drawing upon those commonplaces, right? Which may be a little bit different than than the the act of commonplacing.
1: Yes, but I think, yeah, I think it does serve to writing things down is a helpful way just to start remembering things. Once we've written it down in our own handwriting, which is what I have the students do, that reinforces it, as well as then talking about it, sharing it with the class that when I have them, usually I'll have them come up to the podium and I'll sit down and, and they can hold forth and and, and they'll they'll spend 30 seconds to a minute up there reading their quote, sharing about it. And just that that practice of of talking and sharing is is good. Talking about ideas is is so edifying. And oftentimes the students will bring out things in the in the literature that I had not even noticed before. So that's that's really valuable for me is a chance to to see how our other students engaging with the literature, what are they what are they drawing from it and often they'll notice things that I had had overlooked in my own in my own reading. Yeah,
0: that's an important that's an important point. Uh, and I, I think it's worth noting here that um, even teachers are lifelong learners and still learning something. and whether or not you're talking about an 18 year old or a 12 year old student, there are things that we are learning from from students in the context of class as you've just noted.
1: Yes and that that's one of my favorite things about teaching is this opportunity to continue learning and continuing practicing and and developing my own my own skills and so i try to do things like like this i keep my own commonplace book with things that i'm reading and I'll, and i'll share my own quotations from from what we've read that week or from other stuff that i've come across this year i have a a small elective class creative writing and so as i'm assigning the the poetry assignments, I'm having, I'm, I'm challenged to write my own. Like this week, the students are writing a sestina, which is a, an intricate form, a 39 line poem where it's six stanzas and it's based on a group of six words that are at the end of each line. And then the, the six stanzas present those, those six words in different combinations. And so it's a, it's a form of poetry that is, it's like a puzzle to have a coherent idea that's constrained by those six words at the end of each line of the stanza. So, so doing that, though, like practicing writing, it's a real challenge to put thoughts into words. Yeah. And so, so putting myself through that, through that challenge is important for me to, to continue to do that so that I don't get disconnected from Right. things that I'm having students do. Right, right. Yeah, that, that, that's,
0: that's important.
1: Stephen, in, in we,
0: we're, we're running out of time here. Um, in, in one minute, I want you to mention, because you're a teacher and you're also writing and you've done some worldview guides. tell us briefly about those guides and where people
1: interested might find them. Yes. Well, I had the opportunity a few years ago to write some worldview guides for Canon Press. They publish a lot of classical Christian curriculum and guides. And so these are short little guides. They're sort of like the equivalent of Cliff's Notes or Spark Notes, but from a Christian perspective. And so I've written three of these over the last five years. The first one was on one of my favorite novels, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So that's about the life of a prisoner in a gulag. And then another one I wrote is on the Shakespearean tragedy, Othello, which is a work that we read with the the 12th graders, as we do with One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. The third one that I've written is on Bullfinch's mythology. The American writer Thomas Bullfinch collected the Greek and Roman myths and put them in an accessible form back in the 1850s. And so based on his version of the myths, then I have another worldview guide. So, so those are available at, at Canon Press. My current project is an introduction to Russian literature, that I also hope to publish. And, and I don't know which publisher will will pick that up. But that, that's one thing that I'm also very passionate about is teaching the, the works of the great, the great Russian writers from some that are lesser known, like Alexander Pushkin, Nikolai Gogol, and then, of course, some of the, the most well-known ones like Dostoevsky. So, so that's my, my current writing project. And again, the, the writing projects, I, I appreciate that because that, that's humbling me to have to go through some of these same challenges that that students are doing and to realize that it's like it, it is it is hard to express oneself articulately yeah. so I I appreciate the opportunity to work on these things yeah yep yeah. And, and and I think the students
0: probably appreciate that as well um so well thanks thanks Stephen um that's all the time we have today thank you for being with us um appreciate your work and everything you're doing and uh the explanations here that you've given have been I think, helpful and helpful for framing the place for literature in a classical Christian school so All right, well
1: thank you Anthony for the opportunity to share
0: and uh thank you for listening uh, please subscribe to the view from the valley podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and if you like what you're hearing give us a review till next time grace and peace